Okay, we're gonna go ahead and start our next session on hermeneutics and standpoint epistemology. So hermeneutics, as, uh, as I tried to summarize earlier, hermeneutics is essentially the science of interpreting scripture. How do you arrive at a correct interpretation or understanding of any text of scripture? And I'm gonna go ahead and define standpoint epistemology on the front end. Standpoint epistemology is the idea that while I have a hermeneutic, that someone with a different set of experiences using the same hermeneutic can arrive at a different outcome. So standpoint epistemology is while we might all share a hermeneutic, experience plays a factor in how we interpret any passage of scripture. And so therefore from where I stand versus from where you stand, truth, how I get to truth looks different. So epistemology is just how do you get to truth? Standpoint epistemology says that people who have different experiences get to truth differently. And ultimately uh, it comes to uh, a head in a quote, for example, like this. Um, this is out of an introduction to a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it says, we should note, this is the author uh, close to the end of their introduction, we should note that all of the readings above come from European traditions of Christianity. This is understandable because of my own situation as an author, as well as the massive influence that Christianity has hand had on the West for nearly 2,000 years. However, as the center of global Christianity continues to shift both South and East, we would be wise to hear from perspectives beyond those that are Western and Caucasian. This is under a section called non-Western and non-Caucasians readings of the Sermon on the Mount. So the person has prioritized not from a point of truth or hermeneutic, but from a point of what does your skin look like and what category do you fall in? You might have a different experience and therefore maybe a different way to get to truth than they do. So this is not something that is a boogeyman out in out nowhere. These are published books that are given to seminary students to read and to learn from. So these are real things that are happening. <laughs> um, I'm gonna advocate for what's called the grammatical historical hermeneutic of scripture. Where this hermeneutic comes from is this is the hermeneutic that Luther and Calvin used to recapture the gospel during the Reformation. So when the gospel was lost, they used the grammatical historical hermeneutic to understand what the scripture meant, how we understood the truth of any one scripture, and ultimately how do we apply that scripture to our lives. That breaks down very basically into, I mean, the word parts are right there. I just wanna be over, I wanna over explain it in case you uh, have questions. Grammatical just means the sentence structure, uh, whether it's a verb or a noun, how the participles relate to one another, where the period goes, how you break a paragraph. The language that an author uses is one of the ways that we can understand what the author means. So I express to you right now what I mean and what I'm thinking in my head by the words that I'm saying. Grammatical hermeneutic says, if someone writes something down and we read those words, it's not how I respond to what they said that determines the meaning. It's what did they actually mean when they wrote what they said. So the grammatical hermeneutic tries to put together the words, the paragraph, the argument of the author. It tries to get inside their head by using their words. The historical hermeneutic says we always have to understand any author in their context in history. Now what that does not mean is if an author is older than a couple hundred years that we ignore what they had to say because they didn't know the things that we knew. But if we're dealing with Gnosticism in the first century when we read Irenaeus is against heresies, we have to understand that he had a particular kind of thing that he was up against. So as he's arguing, we can also assume the kind of background he's arguing against and that helps us to understand what he's talking about when he says things. When Jesus in the first century goes around on foot and travels by boat across the sea, we can understand that he did that because cruise ships weren't invented yet and because there were no cars, that's why he walks around. That's a historically accurate reading of something. It helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he was like. It helps us to understand what the conditions were for those people. It does not invalidate truth claims. All it's trying to do is, what are the things that they're dealing with on the ground? 
We, for example, when we read the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says, you have heard it was written, and if all you have is Matthew, no Old Testament, it's going to be really hard for you to make sense of what that means. But in historical context, we know that Jesus is a Jew speaking in that context to Jewish people. And so when he says, you have heard it was written, he's operating off of the Jewish law. That's a historical assumption of the hermeneutic. Does that make sense? So while he doesn't say Exodus, he doesn't cite Exodus, you know, whatever, he's, he's assuming background knowledge from them. And we can assume that kind of historical context as well. So that's called the grammatical historical hermeneutic. The postmodern hermeneutic is something we're going to watch uh, played out in this uh, series of verses here. Um, and I'm just going to go ahead and open to John 4, verse 6. Uh, you should already hopefully be there. And we might not read all of this. We just might hit some of the high points. So, uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where would you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have come or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman asked him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm just going to stop there in verse 26 of the passage. The reason I read all of that section is because there are some things that Jesus says in that section that we might read and on a surface level not really understand what's going on because we are 2,000 years removed from the context in which this is happening. Many of us have never gone to a well to draw water. So we have to understand the context, the historical context in which this is happening. They go to wells, people come out of the city and go to the well to draw water. The reason the woman is coming out in the middle of the day to draw water, right? It says it's at the sixth hour of the day. The reason she's coming out is because she carries shame from the fact that she has, as Jesus points out, had many husbands and the person she's currently living with, she's not married to. 
So she carries shame. That's why she comes out at this hour. So those are all historical realities that we can understand from the text. The text doesn't say she carries shame. We can assume that from the, the historical context in which it's in. The grammatical context in which it's in tells us that Jesus is revealing himself to be living water, uh, that he's, he's arguing that while she is asking for water, he is talking about living water. And so he's using a grammatical play on words to talk about him being the water that gives life and um, then you will never be thirsty again. He's obviously talking about something spiritual. That is the grammatical use of language that Jesus is using. We've all been familiar with this text of scripture. Many of you might have read the scripture or even heard sermons preached on this passage of scripture. What I want to do, though, is if we remove the historical grammatical hermeneutic and we put on the lens of what, for example, that commentary would advocate for a postmodern reading with a little bit of critical theory sprinkled in, you're going to get a very different understanding of what these verses come to mean. The grammatical historical hermeneutic is Jesus condemning the woman for her sin and saying that he offers the life that she so desperately needs, that she can't find her satisfaction in any of the husband that she's in. She can't find it in the acceptance of society. She must go to Jesus Christ and his redemption of her for salvation. So he, con he condemns her of sin when he says, you have had five husbands, and she professes that she actually is in sin and she wants to know how he knew that. That's the grammatical historical hermeneutic. The postmodern hermeneutic would say something more along the lines of this. Remember, everything is oppressor oppressed. And so when uh, Jesus is interacting with this woman, the woman who comes in the middle of the day is she's the oppressed person in this society. She's not only not a Jew, she's a Samaritan. So she's part of an oppressed group. And more than that, she's a woman. More than that, she's an unmarried woman. So she is part of the lowest of the low in terms of an oppressed person in Jewish society. So she is, she, fit, she checks all the boxes for oppressed. When Jesus says to her that she has had five husbands and the person she's living with now is not her husband, the postmodern hermeneutic would say, well, she's the oppressed person. She, she, he's not accusing her of sin because she's oppressed. She's not guilty of that. What he is saying, though, is you have been the victim of society around you. And it has been necessary for you to have this many husbands and to, to endure the abuses of people divorcing you and ultimately to endure the person who you're currently with who won't even marry you. He's sympathizing with her situation. He's not condemning her sin. He's sympathizing with her as an oppressed person. And then he's saying, the way to shed off that oppression is to accept me into your heart and I will save you from that oppression. And we will essentially, uh, you, will, you will never be oppressed again. That is what is the postmodern hermeneutic of this scripture. The woman is not guilty of sin. She is an oppressed person. She can't be guilty of sin. Society has oppressed her in some way. What Jesus comes to do is to shed off the bounds of society and redeem her from that oppression. Different kind of hermeneutic, different way of getting to truth. Now, if you think I'm just making this up, I've both heard sermons like this and I have read commentaries like this. So this is not a boogeyman out there. These are people in the church today who publish books on this topic and who preach sermons that sound like that second half interpretation that I just said. So this is a real hermeneutic of approaching scripture. Now you have to understand that as soon as you get rid of grammatical historical hermeneutic and you put on a postmodern hermeneutic, anyone who's more oppressed than you has a better understanding of scripture than you. Scripture is whoever is the most oppressed can interpret it. So the church should really have elders in the church who are gay, black, transgender, females, those are the people who have the highest moral authority. Therefore, they're the only ones who can rightly interpret scripture for us. It's a new priesthood, a new way of understanding truth. 
it adds a whole list of qualifications to understanding Scripture beyond what Paul puts out in 1 Timothy 3. Paul says that if you want an elder of a church, you want someone who's going to teach the Word to you, you need this set of criteria. And the, this hermeneutic, this standpoint of epistemology says, get rid of all those things, and we need people who are the most oppressed. Those are the people who we want teaching us. And so you will, you will get people who buy into this in some way. And the church will say things like, oh, you need to listen to so-and-so because they speak from a different kind of perspective. And they agree with me on this. They're borrowing moral authority from people, not because of the arguments, because the argument should stand on its own. They're borrowing moral authority from people who have been oppressed in the, in the way that society expects you to have been oppressed if you want to speak on that issue. That doesn't mean that we say experience is not important as Christians, but we don't say that experience is the highest source of authority for understanding anything. This hermeneutic says experience is the exclusive source of authority for understanding anything. So you, as a white Western Christian, could not possibly have read this correctly. You need to listen to people who have a different set of experiences and them interpreting the passage for you. It doesn't matter what the text says. It doesn't matter what John intended when he said it. John is articulating things about oppressors and oppressed, even though John had no conception of those kinds of categories. So that is uh, a way in which you do away with hermeneutics and you do away with truth and you put truth in the hands of whoever is the most oppressed. That's why that previous uh, discussion on who is the most oppressed becomes very important because the more oppressed you are, the more truth you wield and therefore the more weight your voice carries. There's still no such thing as objective truth because if someone comes along who's a bigger source of oppression than you, they, uh, they, uh, they now carry the, the sword of truth. So there's no such thing as objective truth, but uh, if you're a white male and you're straight, you can be sure that you did not get it right. And you need to listen to other people on that. So that is uh, hermeneutics and standpoint epistemology. The very last thing uh, is, I, I termed it oppressed Gnosticism. It's been called ethnic Gnosticism by some as well. Remember when we looked at Irenaeus and his quote, and I'll just, I'm just gonna pull it back up here. Um, Irenaeus said that, uh, the, these things are put forward to seem truer than truth itself. And the thing he's dealing with is Gnosticism. People who claim to have a secret knowledge and understanding that goes beyond the understanding of Scripture as it's been presented. They claim to have a secret revelation and you need to come to them for truth. And you can understand how this, what we just looked at, is literally no different than Gnosticism. Because what the Gnostics said is you can't look at the Scripture as it's been written. You can't look at the canon as it's been assembled. Those, that's not enough. You need outside revelation. And you need to specifically come to me for that revelation. Now, the Gnostics had an inconsistent way of getting there. They would say, because I have special revelation. And they would fabricate miracles and fabricate apostolic signs to get that authority. Today, someone just needs to say, I'm more oppressed than you. And now they have that Gnostic weight and authority to them. And whatever interpretation follows must be accepted. Because they have the special revelation that you couldn't understand. So you have to go to them for teaching. You have to seek them. And even if it disagrees with all of historical traditional Christianity, don't worry, because that was mainly white people, even though it wasn't. <laughs> but you have to get rid of all that stuff, and you have to go to the new Gnostics and get truth from them. So the more oppressed you are, the more Gnostic power you wield and the more moral authority you carry.